Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast, where we talk to influential women about their experiences in research, entrepreneurship, innovation, and mentorship in the aquaculture industry. My name is Jean Coden, and I'm the digital editor of Aquaculture North America. Now, I've been wanting to talk to more female aquaculturists for a while now, and I found a gift of a conversation in Brianna Warner. Brianna is the chief executive officer of Atlantic Sea Farms, the largest kelp farming company in Maine. She has harnessed her expertise in economic development and turned it into an opportunity for lobster farmers to expand their business model. As a person who works at the C-suite executive level, I knew that I could really explore a lot of topics about the industry with her. Things like driving the local economy and creating business opportunities in the middle of a pandemic. And we talked about what it takes to have diversity and inclusion in your company workforce. I knew that from her CEO platform, she could really answer these questions from a place of authority and influence. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. I'd like to first thank our program sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Together, we ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Now, please enjoy the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast with Brianna Warner. Hi, Brianna. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. Um, I know you're a busy lady, so I really appreciate carving out some time for me to have this conversation with you. So welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. The first thing I usually ask people when I talk to them for this podcast is that what brought you to aquaculture? And you have a really interesting story when I was reading about it. Um, you've had so many lives and many different careers before you found aquaculture. Can you tell us a little bit of a, I guess, Cliff Notes version of <laughs> how you kind of came around to aquaculture? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to thank you for having me and and the word you're trying to get out. And and there's so many exciting opportunities for women in aquaculture. And in some ways, we have the potential just because it is such a new industry in so many ways in the United States in particular. We have ways that we can actually be the leaders as women in this industry without having to break down some of the institutional male-dominated forces that exist in so many other industries. Mm. So I think it's really exciting what you're doing and I'm excited to be here today. So uh, my background is in economic development, not in fisheries, not in aquaculture. Um, And I came to aquaculture basically through that lens of economic development. And my career has varied from a diplomat in the US Foreign Service to you know, uh, nonprofits. Um, and, and now I'm running Atlantic Sea Farms, um, which is focused on helping make our coast more resilient through the diversification of the lobster fishery into kelp aquaculture. So, uh, it's been, it's been a really fun journey, but there's definitely been a link between everything that I've done about focusing on resilience and and sort of trying to figure out ways to solve problems before they happen. Um, Because in some, in economic development, you know, the ultimate goal is to never have the the big problem happen, but instead really be able to, to find solutions to the problems before they occur. One of the favorite jobs that I saw on your CV was that, did you run a bakery or a pie bakery at one point? I did. I, um, I, when I got back from the foreign service, I moved to Maine and, um, 
you know, it was, it wasn't clear to me if I was going to be staying here or if I was going to go back into the foreign service. It was, it was a two-year leave of absence. So I basically, I started a, a, um, I realized that one of the things that we have here in Maine is, is a very rich and vibrant new Mainer community of, of new of folks who have recently moved to the United States, relocated to the United States through their refugee or asylee programs. And kind of as the whitest state in the country, the lack of opportunities for those folks to be hired simply because people were, people in Maine were afraid to hire them because of language barriers or, or whatever underlying racism or, you know, whatever it may be. You know, I, I spoke some of those languages and also just had had been in enough places to recognize that you don't have to speak English in order to be able to cook extremely well, obviously. Um, so I started a, a bakery. I'd always been passionate about pastry and started a bakery which employed uh, new Mainers uh, as a way to for them to get first jobs in Maine and in the U.S. and um, and and make creative foods that maybe introduce people to new flavorings because I find that with food and this is continue continues to be a theme in what we do you can bring people to the table in a very different way and it sort of surpasses national borders and cultures and and politics when you kind of sit down over food that's delicious uh, the conversation becomes very different and that and that's what we hoped to achieve from from that company and it was it was extremely successful I was starting a family at the time. So um, found that being on my feet for 18 hours a day didn't really fit into to my life at that moment in time. But we had a lot of people get first jobs and we were able to move that company to under a different company's headline and, and really sort of make our point that people that new mainers were a fantastic asset to the state. And um, yeah, it was it was a great success. Wow, that's amazing. What is what is it called? It's is it still around? No, it is. It was bought by a company called Two Fat Cats, which is based here in Portland. Um, our company name was Main Pie Line, but they do excellent pies and and still have many new mainers working there. Okay, that's amazing. What I want to know then is, have you ever made a kelp pie? Just to like create <laughs> <course>. that through line. <laughs> of course, I have. Um, there's we've I've made a, a a pork and sichi pie a few times, um, which is sichi is our seaweed based kimchi. Oh wow, that sounds amazing! Yeah, savory pies are very underrated. I think, I think they're fantastic, especially <laughs> little hand pies that you can grab and go. Yeah. Um. So the bakery was sort of your last venture before you came to Atlantic Sea Farms, right? No, between that, I went to work with the Island Institute, which is a organization focused on uh, coastal resilience, both in Maine and elsewhere. Okay. So how did that kind of parlay into Atlantic Sea Farms and how you decided to stay into the aquaculture industry? What was the main draw? Yeah. So for me, when I was at the Island Institute, the big question that I was trying to answer and what I was hired to answer as their first economic development director was when we're looking out of the coast of Maine and we know that the, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 98% of oceans in the world. And we are completely dependent on a lobster monoculture. What are our potential solutions to make our, make sure our coast is more resilient in the face of climate change as that fishery becomes increasingly volatile. So it's a big question and it's a big challenge, but the opportunities are somewhat bigger. And that is that we have more coastline than the state of California. 
We have 4,000 plus lobster license holders in the state of Maine, all of whom are individual owner operators. They own their own boat. You cannot fish your on your boat without the license holder on it. So it's not, it's unlike basically any other fishery in the United States. You know, these, these are people who are, who are running their fishery. You also can't sell your license. So for all intents and purposes, it's a generational fishery. So you have this like incredible asset of these individual owner operators who are very conservation minded because it is a, a, a generational fishery. People want to preserve it for their children and their children's children. Uh, and their grandfathers have fished. Um, you know, these guys and gals are are really looking at the ocean and seeing some significant changes. But they also right now are in the middle of a of a pretty significant lobster boom. So there's cash in the bank. Uh, they have the equipment needed to do aquaculture. You know, large boats. They have the knowledge for sure of knots and you know aqu half of aquaculture is being able to tie really good knots, <laughs> as you know, um, and. Uh, you know, just tons of social license. So in some ways, the opportunity is much bigger. And it was very clear to me that, you know, when when people talk about, you know, diversification or when there's been a natural resource industry that has gone by the wayside, people always want to kind of think of the people who used to work in that industry as widgets. So think about coal in West Virginia, for example, and that we're just going to be able to take coal miners and turn them into solar experts. Like talk about a totally different skill set. But here on the coast of Maine, we could talk about putting lobstermen behind hotel desks, but that would both kill the lobstermen and probably kill our, our tourism industry. Or we could talk about what are the talk about the skill set that they already have and this incredible natural asset of our, our incredibly protected, clean coast coastline. And aquaculture is a great diversification tactic for folks. And that's really how I got into it as I was working with fishermen on getting people into mussels, seaweed, um, and oyster aquaculture. But the issue with seaweed aquaculture is there was no buyer in the entire country. That's really interesting. Um, what would you say is your first job at aquaculture? Well, that was my first job is kind of getting people into those industries, you know, working with experts in the field to get them trained, to get them leases. Uh, you know, it was very clear to us that there was no seaweed buyer at scale in the entire country. So although wild oysters and mussels are pretty straightforward, um, they're terribly capital intensive and they take some time to get to market and they don't necessarily use the same equipment as lobstering. With seaweed, it is kelp is grown in the lobsters off season. It uses the same boats, the same social license, the same equipment, and what that means is that people can make pretty small capital investments, really, and they make a profit after six months. And so we needed to be able to set up the system in which kelp could actually be sold to a buyer and, and go from there and produce excellent seeds. So we, as an organization, invested in this company called Ocean Approved, which was the first commercial seaweed farm in the country in 2009. Uh, and for quite some time, it was it was two small farms in the Casco Bay here in Maine. Uh, and these guys were the first, the pioneers, to do what they were doing. And so they really did a lot of work in figuring out how do you farm kelp in the Gulf of Maine? How do you have a kelp nursery in the United States? But it wasn't really kind of scaling in any significant way. It was very small. And in fact, the entire country produced around 35,000 pounds of kelp in 2018. So when we took our investment to help ocean approved scale, what we basically said was, let's 
let's work with fishermen because um, they're going to be better growers than than you are, quite frankly. But also um, because you can you can scale your supply chain really quickly. Now, from our perspective at the Island Institute, it wasn't about either of those things. It was about finding a market for kelp grown by fishermen as a diversification tactic. But luckily it was a piece where economic efficiency, economic ideas and profit uh, had a perfect overlap with uh, coastal resiliency and diversification. So so as we were invested in the company, I sat on the board and after founder transition, I took over as CEO at the end of 2018. And for the 2019 growing season, we were working with 10 fishermen uh, and now we are working with 27 partner farmers on the coast of Maine from Portland to Eastport, and we'll be bringing in about 1 million pounds of kelp this year, up from 35,000 in the entire country in 2018. So it's clear that, you know, the, the farming part is, you know, for fishermen is fairly easy to get into where we work with them. We grow all of their seeds from scratch. We give them those seeds for free, which completely mitigates their risk during the winter season. Then we buy back everything that they grow. We process it. We turn it into value-added products, both for uh, retail, but also ingredient and food service for other people's products. You know, we we're kind of chugging along. So this is our, this will be our third harvest season that we're coming up on um, this year. And it's with the 27 partner farmers. Wow, that's amazing. Um, has COVID at all affected your production in the past two years? We, prior to COVID, were almost entirely in food service. So it was large format, you know, raw and and only slightly value-added materials that chefs were using. We had to make a pretty significant shift after COVID into retail. And with those products, really what we were aiming to do is make fresh seaweed very accessible. 98% of the seaweed that we eat in the United States right now is imported, dried, And some of that is very accessible in the form of seaweed snacks. Obviously they're in almost everybody's pantry and they're fantastic, but the other ingredients with the other pieces of, of seaweed that are on the market are, are not particularly accessible unless you're a chef or you really, really know your way around the kitchen. So dried pieces of kombu, dried pieces of kelp, dulse, you know, those kind of things, they, the while the, the, they're delicious, you really have to know how to cook um, to make them. And even if you do know how to cook, you don't usually, usually use them every day. So we took a fresh product that was not dehydrated and turned it into five different products, which is now seven different products that people can use at every day without having to know a lick about cooking. Or you could be, you know, as we proved out with this, with a collaboration with Sweet Green and David Chang, you could also be a world-renowned chef like David Chang and, and use it in your salad. So, you know, we have a blanched shredded product that people can just thaw and eat. We have a fermented seaweed salad that you just put your fork in and eat it. We have smoothie cubes and we're really trying to bring fresh domestic kelp to people's plates in a way that's really easy to use. Has that always been the plan for the company or has the pivot that you had to make during the pandemic really opened up these doors for you? Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's opened up the doors. I mean, our plan for the company is to build demand for kelp so that we can get more partner farmers in the water and stop. Everything else we do is a tactic in which we can get there. So whether it's retail, food service, ingredient, you know, no, it was not our plan to be 90% retail for sure. Um, But it was always one of the tactics that we had in our toolbox 
but it's just the one that we happen to lean on more in the last two years. And we've come out stronger because of it, because it gets our story in front of people in a more robust everyday way. But our plan is to just drive demand for our partner farmers kelp. And that's what we do day in and day out. And where it goes from there, you know, we just need to make the best possible, highest quality product so that people want to eat it and people want to um, put it on their skin and people want to, you know, do, do the things with it that will drive demand and, and allow us to get to amplify our impact on the coast. Going a little bit deeper to your expertise in economic development, I found a blog post a few years ago from Oceans 2050. I'll include a link for our listeners if they're curious and want to read about it. But there's a direct quote there that I kind of wanted to read out loud now and have you comment a little bit about it. In it, you write that I want people to know that everything we do is driven by the idea that economic problems can be solved by acting in advance of when the problems happen. And more often than not, people wait until after the conflict to do anything. By that time, it is more difficult to dig out of that hole. So can you expand a bit more about that? And how has the pandemic really exacerbated all of these underlying issues in the economy in Maine? For lobster, it's it's been one of those things where we've had two good landing years, um, which is not always the case with lobster, but two good landing years. And it's sort of the tale of two very different years. You know, the first year of the pandemic, the, the demand went way down because people weren't going to restaurants. And that's where most of our lobster is sold. But by this year, people were going to restaurants a little bit more, but more importantly, they learned how to cook at home. All of a sudden people were cooking lobster at home. And then when the restaurants were opening back up, you had double the demand that you ever did before. And so in some ways it's kind of proven the volatility of that lobster industry. And, and with those 4,000 lobster license holders, you certainly have the guys that are like, Hey, you know, this industry is doing great. It's going to be like this forever. But you also have a lot of the guys that are like, man, something's wrong when I am completely dependent on a fishery that's as fickle as people wanting to go out to dinner or not. And that's really scary to have all my eggs in one basket. I need to diversify. And in fact, that's what it has been in the coast for all of time. You know, they fish for cod, they fish for shrimp, they fish for, you know, name your species. But now it's just lobster. Everything else is gone. And it's scary for people. And I think it's just highlighted how much people are critically uh, leaning on one industry. And so, yeah, it hasn't been a problem to a huge extent yet because the fishery is doing well. But if we're thinking about this proactively, let's take the money that people are making now and invest it in a better, more resilient future so that on the years where lobster is bad, people aren't worrying about if they can keep their boat or not. And that's what, you know, in 2012 was a perfect example. All of a sudden the lobster shed real early and there was no processing and there was a glut of lobsters and places were being foreclosed on all up and down the coast because fishermen were living season to season. Bait prices are going way up because there's no bait fish out there uh, to the level there used to be, you know, 20 years ago. So while people are catching more and making more gross uh, they're not netting more because they're spending a ton of money on bait and fuel. The lobster is moving slightly offshore. So that means bigger boats. That means more equipment. So I think it's it's just a tale to me and to certainly many guys in the industry, guys and gals in the industry, that there needs to be some reliance on something other than just lobster alone. 
it sounds like an easy sell to partner with local lobster farmers and, you know, have them be a part of growing kelp on their off seasons. But is it still a challenge to kind of parlay that argument to them? Nope, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) We have, um, you know, people often say this in a pejorative way, but I'm saying it in a, in a non-pejorative way, but that money talks like what we have proven is number one, we are who we say we are. We show up when we say we're going to, I mean, I think 2020 was a perfect example. We were harvest season for us is April to June. And we all know what happened in March, 2020 and all of our customers bottomed out. We had nothing, nobody. And we still showed up for every single farmer because we promised them we would. And we wrote them an email saying, if this is the last thing we do as a company, we will buy all of your kelp. And so people know that we show up, which here on the coast of Maine is a big deal. It's a big deal everywhere, but here it goes even further. I think people remember that stuff. We're a small state. We all know each other pretty well. So um, it's important. Uh, But second of all, it just took a few guys making some good money from, you know, their off season income. And suddenly we have quite a bit of interest. So people are often saying like, how do you get fishermen involved in this like climate change discussion? I'm like, I don't meet them on climate change. I meet them on diversification. I meet them on the volatility of the industry. Um, you have to meet people where they are. And if you're having, if you're not meeting people where you are and then where they are, and where you can both agree, and then you wonder why you disagree, then you've missed the point of how to have like basic human interaction. And I feel like we've really missed that in America in the past <laughs> eight years or more. We're starting to lose sight when, when someone we think is just wrong. We're starting to lose sight of the fact that we actually have more common ground than not. And with Maine's fishing industry, I'd have no idea what the politics of most of our partner farmers are. But I know exactly uh, the type of pie that their wife makes, and I know exactly what kind of boat they have, and I know their kids' names, and I know their favorite foods. Like we know each other very well, and never once have we talked about politics, and or climate change or any of that. I mean, we talk about climate change when people ask. People like knowing that they're doing something better for the environment because kelp also helps mitigate some of the effects of climate change by removing carbon and and nitrogen from the water column. But that's not really where we talk about. We talk about gear and, and, and how we can kind of create a more diverse economy. Now, speaking of climate change, a common challenge for the aquaculture industry is having to dispel environmental groups that are anti fish farming or anti fishery in general from your experience, have you found an effective way of creating that public education or at least public conversation to what your company does? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be a long process. You know, we'd love to think that we are a household name in everybody's house, but of course we aren't yet. We just beginning, I think in the, in, in much of the climate activism and food community, which is there's luckily there's a lot of us out there, right? I think Atlantic Sea Farms is starting to get some recognition and and what we're doing. But, you know, similarly to what I was saying about meeting fishermen where they are, we have to meet consumers where they are too. People don't want to go to the store and get beaten over the head by climate change. People want to know that they're doing something good for the environment and for their body, but they also want things that taste good. And, you know, when, when people feel preached to or spoken down to, they don't want to buy the product. And so one of the products lines that we just launched is our, is our cranberry kelp cubes and our blueberry ginger kelp cubes. And they're just for smoothies and they taste great. 
and are an awesome sustainable regenerative product. And we certainly talk about that on the back, but we get there because we know people want smoothies that are taste better and are good for them. Like that's why they're drinking smoothies, right? Um, So rather than meeting people with like, you need to buy this because this is a climate friendly vegetable, eat it, eat it, eat it. We're talking to people of saying like, hey, this is, this is really delicious in your smoothie. And then on the back, we're doing the stealth, like, and all these ingredients are regenerative. (laughs) And, and so people are starting to get to know us a little bit more and more. And as we kind of spread out across the country, we're in Whole Foods National now, Sprouts, Moms, Wegmans, you know, people are seeing our products more and more, and hopefully that's making them a little bit more aware and cognizant of what's going on in our oceans and how they can eat better and make better choices for our planet. Well, from what you talked about, it sounds like it's more about creating that education to the consumer directly, as opposed to, you know, trying to talk to the arguments against um, anti-farming or anti-aquaculture groups that, you know, are fighting against people's permits and things like that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a shame. I think what we find particularly interesting is that we don't get the pushback that a lot of other aquaculture does. And in, and, and in general, that really frustrates me because I think people see kelp and they see this woman-led company and they see these fishermen diversifying and they think, well, that's, that's good aquaculture um, as, if, as if we exist in some, in some different universe than the rest of aquaculture you know, it, it, as, as if we're just kind of like out there and aren't affected by, by regulations on aquaculture in general. And I always find that really interesting. Um, you know, I work on the MAA uh, board, Maine Aquaculture Association board. My colleagues are in shellfish and oysters and salmon. And I think that, you know, when people don't want to see a farm quote unquote, outside their front yard, they villainize it and they ignore the fact that there's, you know, massive feedlots two miles away. And in Maine, I think that's particularly problematic because we have a lot of people that only come up for a month, a year in the middle of the summer and want to look out and see an empty ocean as if it is their choice um, as to what, you know, as to who uses the ocean and for what purposes. So I always find those arguments being interesting because they tend to come to us with like, you guys are doing such great things. How can I help? And we say, oh, you know, we, you can support aquaculture. And they say aquaculture, but there's the salmon farm or aquaculture, but like, you know, the river is clogged up with oysters. None of which is true, of course, but you know, maybe we can be a little bit disarming in a good way. Maybe we can start that conversation from a different point. And certainly there's there's always going to be people that criticize our farms too, but they, you know, you can't see them in there in the winter when the rich landowners are not there <laughs> and they're done by fishermen. So they're not taking up any bottom that would, that people perceive as taking up bottom in, in areas that might be fish. So, you know, I, I hope that we can be a medium through which people can have productive conversations, but I certainly fear that the nimbyism of of riparian landowners and sort of the villainization around aquaculture, judging the whole industry on bad practices of the 1970s. You know, I, I, I do hope that those disappear, but I fear that they continue to get louder. And often from the very people who are trying to fight against climate change, that is almost, you know, 40% contributed to by terrestrial agriculture. I want to get to know you a little bit more 
I was wondering how you would describe your role as chief executive officer. I have, I, I feel like my role, if I'm doing my role well, is to hire and hire and support fantastic people to build a company that makes, uh, you know, that makes a difference in the world. And I, I hope every day that I'm doing that, I certainly, I feel like our team is, is phenomenal. Um, and they're all experts in their field, you know, many of which are not aquaculture. We have uh, a seaweed scientist, we have a sales, sales director, we have ingredient sales, we have a chef for fermentation, we have production managers, we have continuous improvement folks. And every one of them, if, if I'm doing a good job, every one of them is feels empowered to make good decisions and they all are um, capable of making those good decisions. And that's how I see my role is supporting a team to move forward and sort of leading on the, on the policy side or on the, um, you know, making sure that we have a good strategic vision in which people can work. I like to kind of get a little bit more of an inside of you as a CEO, because, um, no matter what the industry, aquaculture or not, having a female chief executive officer is still a rare thing. Do you have mentors that you look to for guidance and advice on how you can fulfill your role as CEO? Yeah, you know, it's something that I always find really interesting. And I, I was speaking to a woman in seaweed in, in Sweden the other day, um, and she said it perfectly. So I'm going to blatantly steal it from her. But when people talk about women CEOs, they always talk about mentorship. And when they talk about male CEOs, they talk about investment. I don't need any mentorship. I'm the C like, I didn't get here because I needed to be babysat. I need investment. I need advisors. I need to move forward. And I feel like we need to change the language we use about female CEOs to stop talking about mentorship, but more talking about how we're all badasses if we're in this role and we can do it. We just need the support system, just like male entrepreneurs do of people who have done it before people who can help lift us up and clap back and make introductions and help us get the money to do what we need to do. But mentorship, you'll rarely ever hear a male CEO be told that they need a mentor. They'll be telling that you'll be, they'll be told they need board of advisors, board of directors, investors, shareholders, and we need the same thing. I love that. Female CEO or male CEO, from your experience at the C-suite level, however, um, what do you see in terms of gender balance of men and women in the aquaculture industry? Because I think from your position on the C-suite level, you have, I guess, a unique perspective and a platform to diversity and inclusion. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are a female-led company. We are 60% women at our company, um, including my supply manager, who is the person who manages all of the farms, recruits all the farmers, does all of the gear. Um, and, um, you know, so in our, in our company, we certainly practice what we preach, but the lobster industry generally is about 10% women. So the vast majority of our farmer, partner farmers are men. But I think on the, in the main aquaculture world, that gender balance is much more equal. And I don't have the stats right off my head right now, 
but I believe it's somewhere near the 35 or 40% of, of leaders of aquaculture businesses in Maine are women. Uh, certainly on the Maine Aquaculture Association, our trade organization, we are equally balanced between men and women as to those who make the decisions in, in aquaculture policy in the state. We have a female governor. You know, we have the, the deputy commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources is a woman. Most of the aquaculture staff are women. So I feel like we don't see a whole lot of, you know, in the aquaculture industry, we do see women really taking the leadership positions in, in a big way. Now, is it 50-50? No, but it is it is definitely less of a barrier than in many other natural, any other fisheries, the lobster industry not exempted from that poor uh, gender imbalance. The only time actually that we feel called out for being women is when people kind of write us and say, could you, we need a woman in aquaculture on our panel, or we need this on. And we're like, how about you ask me as a CEO, you know, not me as a, as a woman CEO. And it's one thing for a podcast like yours, where we're talking about women in aquaculture, but so often we female CEOs in aquaculture and, and in general are tokenized for people to show that they have diversity on their panels or, you know, without just reaching out and saying, hey, Brie, Atlantic Sea Farms is doing great things. We would love to feature you on your on our panel. It's, hey, Brie, we need a CEO in aquaculture on our panel and Atlantic Sea Farms is doing cool things. Like, how about we just not have that first part? How about we get out of the old boys club in the first place and notice that, you know, Atlantic Sea Farms is producing over 80% of the lime grown seaweed in the United States. Like that on its own should get recognition as a panel, not because I'm a woman running it. And uh, yet the old boys club persists. So it's it's been interesting to watch because that's mostly on a, a national stage where those conversations are happening, where on a state level, we don't see any of that happening. Um, it's much more balanced and it's much more obvious that of course we would be leading this, be leading certain initiatives because we are the seaweed company, not because I'm the woman who runs the seaweed company. Mm-hmm. At Atlantic Sea Farms, I think you mentioned it was 60% women. That's correct. What is the key to that? Is it creating policies within the company at the recruitment stage? What is the key to um, creating and ensuring a diverse workforce, um, yep. whether that be gender or, you know, visible minorities or anything like that. What is the key to that? At Atlantic Sea Farms, it's it's hard for us to know, right? Because we don't, don't ask the question. We certainly don't give preferential treatment to women in any way, shape or form. We don't discriminate on age or gender or race or anything. Having said that, I do believe that we get more applications from women than maybe a white male dominated business because people know that we're not preferencing women over men or men over women. I think that people get inspired by seeing female leadership and that lifts other people up to, to make, to, to apply to positions. It's been abundantly clear to me my whole life that in most cases, the female candidates are going to be a little bit better than the male candidates because they've had to hustle harder to get there. Um, But that's not always the case. We certainly have some issues that we're noticing around our operations side of the business that we tend to get less female applicants. And it's something that we've been talking about a lot as a team, including my male colleagues who are leading that section of our business of trying to encourage more female applications into those positions in the physical labor jobs, in the um, 
you know, warehouse management jobs and the forklift jobs, you know, in, in those kind of jobs, but on the science side and on the marketing and sales and financial management side, and even our supply manager, as I said, our farm side, we, we have a, a ton of fantastic female staff, but that operation side, we're always sort of trying to figure out how to encourage more. And, and on diversity and inclusion in general, it becomes a bit of a sticky subject in Maine because we are 97% white in Maine and it's the whitest state in the country. And we speak often about how to encourage more applications from a more diverse, a racially diverse community. And it's been extremely difficult. We have two people on staff that, that would consider themselves minorities and um, that's not enough, quite frankly. And, and it's, it's not okay. And we're always trying to figure out ways to be better. For other aquaculture companies that are looking to, you know, your 60% women workforce and things like that, what is something, like, have people asked you about it in terms of um, asking for advice on how they can kind of apply policies or initiatives that could get them to a similar or a closer number? Um. You know, they ha- people haven't. Again, I think part of this is is Maine. Is that we just we're just a little bit of a different state. I I you know I moved here maybe about seven years ago, and I you know moving from all over the country of all over the world where I lived in Libya and Guinea and South Sudan, and I grew up in Central Pennsylvania, which was fairly gendered um, in, in their in traditional roles in many ways. It was a natural resource-based economy. In Maine, there is certainly that, but there's no shortage of, of women who overcome that very quickly with very little opposition. And, and so there are certainly kind of unspoken barriers that, that exist, particularly in the lobster fishery. You know, the boys are, are taught to fish um, and the girls are not, you know, it's an apprenticeship program. So they're, they're kids when they start. And some of that is because girls are, you know, young girls are not seeing their mothers on the water and they're not seeing their aunts on the water. They're seeing their fathers on the water and their uncles. And so they make a choice not to do that. And some of it is that their fathers don't want to teach them. Right. But, you know, I do think in Maine in general, um, you know, like I said, we have a female governor. It's 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 a little bit different of a state, and so we we people aren't sort of asking about that because it seems to be like common sense. You have really good people on your team. That's great. It doesn't seem to be like you have really good people on your team. I noticed sixty percent of them are women. I never kind of get that second part. I just have like, man, your team is so good, uh, and and so uh, you know. But on a on a national scale, people are asking that a lot. But more importantly, I think women are seeking other women to network with that are leading companies and and feel supported by. And I'm sort of um, of a split mind on that. And I think part of that is the gluttony of living in Maine, of knowing that I have support from males and females uh, that are in my roles in similar roles to mine. Um, So I'm like, come on, like, there's gotta be like, are you reaching out to me just because I'm a woman? Like, come on, you can do this girl. Like, you don't need another woman to do this. You just need people like just good people. And and I feel like I I just feel so blessed in having that, whether it's Bristol Seafood with a male CEO or Luke's Lobster with a male CEO or all of those folks. Like, you know, we have like every few weeks we'll get together and talk about business. And so, again, I feel like part of that is 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 
is endemic to Maine and, and how small of a community we are and, and how, how we are maybe in a male dominated industry where we've just proven that we can do well. And so people aren't questioning it, but I think the most, the most questions I get is mostly from other women who are looking for support on their own journeys, which, which I find both admirable, but also I'm always sort of questioning whether that's the best way we should be utilizing each other. Have you ever had that experience of being the only woman on a panel or being the only woman seat at the table? Is that something that you still see in yourself? And yeah, I think it's funny. I was, I was on a panel the other day where, um, you know, people were kind of talking about a certain subject. And I think when you have a bunch of white males with the same background on the same panel, they come with the same opinions, or at least they don't disagree with each other out loud. And so there's this like feeling of safety when people get on panels that they're all going to sit there and pack each other on the back and talk about how great each other are. And I think these people were great, but they said something I didn't agree with. And I said, you know, I don't agree with that. And this is why, and this is, let's have a great conversation here. And I could tell they looked at that as like, oh my gosh, this person is being confrontational. I certainly wasn't, but I also feel like if we're going to have a panel, let's make it interesting. Like if I don't agree, I'm just going to say it. And I feel like that is something that, you know, when you have consistent racially and gender like homogeny <laughs> on every discussion, you get a bunch of people agreeing with each other. And then that becomes the consensus that becomes truth through repetition. And there are a lot of other ways to do things. We know that terrestrial agriculture is broken. We know that it was broken by white men. Let's do it different in aquaculture. We have the option to do it different. So let's break out of the thinking that broke our food system in the first place. And let's get some other people at the table. Let's get people of color. Let's get women at the table. Because the, the reason that, that things are broken is because we've had a consensus and opinion that has made them so. And if we start challenging how, how we operate and how we work, by getting new thoughts and new visions at the table, you know, because that's what we bring as women and people of color. And, you know, that we bring different perspectives. Thank God it has been so focused around one perspective of 30% of humans on the, in the mm -hmm. United States, mm -hmm. not even on the planet, just 30% yeah. in the United States of, of people are white males, <laughs> like, and they've been dominating the conversation forever since the beginning of the United States. So let's, let's mix it up a little bit because clearly what we've done hasn't worked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in reflecting on our conversation today, it sounds like visibility is truly the key and, you know, shining the spotlight on more others <laughs> yeah. is the key. Um, well, slowly but surely we'll get there. As long as there's people that want to create that initiative and take that lead, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I'll end this podcast with some last thoughts with you. Just some last few questions. What is the best advice you've ever received? Um, geez, that's a hard question. But I think the best advice that I've ever received is probably to take a deep breath before you respond to anything. Um, so like just, you know, at work and I tell this to my, to my staff all the time, like take a deep breath. Has anyone died right now? No, <laughs> cool. Then we're going to get through it. Um, and I think just 
everyone needs to take a deep breath occasionally and management and running a business in aquaculture. And you'll always find that uh, the answer you come up with once you have some more oxygen in your brain is going to be better. Yeah, it's true. It's it's taking that time to really create perspective and not be that knee-jerk reaction all the time, yeah, I guess. That's right. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? <clears throat> um, that that life will always throw changes at you and they will be the changes that you likely need to have in order to grow. I, you know, there's no way I would have pictured myself in far Northern United States and Maine running a kelp company, but thank God I am. Favorite fish pun or joke? <laughs> uh, favorite pun that we use all the time is uh, kelp yourself. Um, oh, kelp nice. yourself to this, kelp yourself to that. We probably overuse it, but there's so many kelp puns that, um, you know, seek kelp. Uh, there's like so many, yeah, so I many love kelp that. puns that we could go on forever. So we often have to edit out our kelp puns from our newsletters. And things like, <laughs> oh shit, we used four of them in one sentence. So I love that. It's just right there, right? Yeah, it's just too easy. <laughs> <laughs> or like, I'll, c- I'll come out of the office and be like, somebody help me. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. And it's kind of within the same theme of the mission of Atlantic Sea Farms in a way, you know? Totally, totally. We've You're built it in too, like kelp the earth, kelp yeah. yourself. That's on all of our stuff. We're, there we're you so go. Lame. Yeah. <laughs> lame is awesome. Lame is the new cool, I think. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, Your insights have been such an education. I'm always learning from people like you, and I'm very grateful for you sharing your wisdom. Thank you very much. I really appreciate all of your help and and getting people excited about being in this industry and, uh, you know, showing women that there are lots of leaders out there in as women and men that, that we should all try to emulate. And, and um, I'm just really excited about the growth of this industry and how we can see it move moving forward. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast. And I hope to continue these conversations with you on our website, aquaculturenorthamerica.com slash women. There you'll find all the episode highlights, links, photos, and more extras from this episode. Now in this episode, we talked about the importance of visibility and bringing more women in aquaculture to the forefront. So I'd like to invite you to use our new online submission form where anyone can share their own stories and maybe stories of other female colleagues. Go to our website, aquaculturenorthamerica.com women. At the top, you'll see a header image that says share her story. Send us stories and photos because we'd love to feature them on our website and in our newsletter. We've got lots more coming your way this month because it's Women's History Month. So thanks again to our program sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. See you soon.